Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuckstables? What the fuck, Ricans? What the fuck, stars? I don't know where that one came from. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for listening to my show. Uh, thanks for everything. Is that a nice way to open? I uh, With gratitude. A big open heart of gratitude. Thank you. I am Mark Marin. Did I, did I already mention that? I am tired. I have been a lot of places in the last... Well, not a lot of places, but it seems like a lot of travel. On the show today, Paul Feig, the uh, director of Bridesmaids which, uh, by the way, I might uh, mention, uh, is up for a couple of Oscars. That happened after I talked to Paul Feig, but not long after. He had just been at the um, Golden Globes, but nonetheless, it's got the uh, Oscar nomination for Original Screenplay and uh, Best Supporting Actress, Melissa McCarthy. I was thrilled to talk to Paul Feig because I'm a guy that came to uh, Freaks and Geeks much later in life. I say that like I was an old man. Well, I was. It was in the last five years. And it and our ages are so close. It was so cl- identical to my high school experience that I, of course, love the show. So we'll get to Paul in just a second. Let's get some business out of the way up front. How about personal business? I will be uh, Magner's Comedy Fest tomorrow night in Boston. You can probably still get tickets today. Not many left if you waited till the last minute, but I think there are a few for the live WTF and for my live stand-up show. Two separate shows at the Wilbur Theater tomorrow night, Friday, January 27th in Boston. Also next weekend, the following weekend, whatever weekend that might be, I'll be at uh, Sketchfest in San Francisco doing a live WTF on the uh, 3rd or 4th. I can't remember. I don't know. Check it out. I should know. Live WTF at Sketchfest. You can go check that out. Why don't I know that? Hey, do me a favor, will you? Will you go look up Sketchfest uh, in San Francisco and see when the live WTF is? I'm doing a couple other shows, smaller shows, but could you do that right now? Oh, you're on the uh, you're on the treadmill. Oh, you're in your car. Oh, you're at work. Well, if you're at work, you can look it up. Just check it out for me and and let me know, will you? Thanks, I appreciate it. I'm talking to you. Yeah, you listening. Oh, let me just tell you this: this band, uh, the music on today's show is uh, by a band called Tyrannosaurus Grace. Uh, they're a great band from the Pacific Northwest on Fake Label Records. Uh, you can check them out at tgraceband.com. So where have I been? I did the show Monday, but uh, I was not—I had not gotten back from Atlanta, nor was I able to comment on Atlanta, nor uh, spread some of my uh, excitement about Atlanta. Man, we sold out five shows. Five shows in Atlanta, The Laughing Skull. Great club, great audiences. Thank you for coming down. Uh, thank you for... Um, making me hate myself food wise but that's you know that's an ongoing struggle but fuck man when you're in georgia when you're in atlanta you're always within a couple miles of biscuits and gravy and there's just no way i can avoid that i was literally three blocks from biscuits and gravy but i'm okay i'm all right i'm not going to complain about it oh can i get a little more business out of the way if you don't mind uh wtf we have a youtube channel now where we tease the uh, episodes of the week and also there's some classic old mark Marin videos up there Am I referring to myself in the third person? There's some videos I did when I was on Break Room Live that are pretty great, and uh, we've started to post them up there. So if you do a search for WTF 
on YouTube. You can go look at those. Also, we have been in the habit of uh, putting up a small audio segment of the uh, upcoming show for like a coming attraction. But the videos I'm really proud of. Uh, we shot those. The ones, all the ones that are up there uh, are directed by Matthew Weiss. And uh, some of them are pretty great and they're pretty funny. And they are, you know, they sort of, uh, they're evergreen. They're timeless. Why do I keep saying sort of? How many times can you say sort of? Moving on in this discussion before we get to Paul Feig. I was at Sundance. I, I don't know if uh, any of you know that. Flown out by Mike Birbiglia and Ira Glass. Uh, I am in Mike's movie, Sleepwalk With Me. I did a, a couple of scenes that uh, turned out to be sort of pivotal scenes in the film. The movie's not about me. It's about Mike. And uh, I'd never been to Sundance before. And a couple of things happened. I had had a, a sort of uh, a tense relationship with Mike. But you, as you know, if you listen to the show, uh, we, had, we did a one-on-one -on -one where I interviewed Mike and we uh, sort of uh, patched that up. And then he uh, interviewed me uh, hosting my own show. Mike uh, was the host of the 200th episode of WTF, uh, where he interviewed me and did a fine job of it. I cannot deny his uh, comic abilities. He's a good stand-up comedian, and he made this movie. I had no idea how the movie would turn out, but the movie turned out really well. It was funny. It was touching, and uh, I was okay in it. I think I was actually I was I was pretty good in it. I saw it twice. The tricky thing for me was, and I must be growing up, or I must be achieving some sort of genuine humility. I don't know that there was a time where I would have even accepted the role from Mike Birbiglia just because of my own weird pride and resentment and jealousy. But not only did I accept the role, I, I was excited to do it. And then I went out to uh, Sundance and, and did some press for Mike's movie and, and, and talked it up and hung out with Mike. And we had a nice time. We had fun. And I don't, you know, this shouldn't be a big life lesson for anybody, but there would have been another time where I don't know whether I could have uh, done any of those things just because I was such a, a bitter, angry fuck. I mean, I don't know if you know the story, but when Mike was running his show, Sleepwalk with me, I was downstairs. He was running his show to sold out audience at the Bleecker Theater upstairs in the big room with a nice set. And I was downstairs workshopping my divorce show in a leaky, shitty, dank basement of the theater. It couldn't have been more metaphoric. The fact that the kid that I always resented for having focus, for being ambitious, for getting things done, and, and really making a name for himself and doing a, uh, you know, his style of comedy, it's honest, it's real, it's, it's good comedy. And there I was in the basement of his successful run of the show that went on to become this movie. You know, obviously I was in bad shape because I was doing a show about my divorce, but, you know, he invited me to see his show and, uh, you know, I met his producer who was out there as well, uh, Seth. And uh, I just could not, I, I could not deal with it. I was a complete douchebag. Couldn't, I couldn't go see his show or anything. Oh my God, I'm so glad I'm over that. It is very hard to not make it be about me and be a team player and be excited about someone else's success, but it's happening more and more, and I just want to share that with you. If you think I'm a pussy for sharing that, or you don't, you know, if it's not your cup of tea, but you know, I had a, I was, I was happy to be part of it, and and I had a great time at Sundance. But I will tell you one spectacular experience. <laughs> Pow! Wow! Did I just shit my pants? Oh man justcoffee.coop I've gotten a few emails of people that don't really like that uh, branding of the coffee but it's doing well for, for me and the coffee and I enjoy saying it so you're just going to have to live with that 
Okay, here's a moment. So we're sitting there in the lobby of the Marriott at Sundance, where we're both staying. And we're just talking. We're waiting for a van to pick us up. And Mike starts to tell me the story about Chris Rock. He talked about, it's an interesting conversation. When you do comedy a long time, you know, you want the big comics to know who you are. You, you want to be part of the community. You want to feel that. You want to feel that you're, you're, you're in the game. You're on their radar. It's just something that you want. I think it's probably the same with any business. But in comedy, it's hard to know, you know, who's exposed to who or whatever. Well, so Mike is telling me this story about Chris Rock, how he'd always wondered if Chris knew him. And, and you know, because Mike's a big comic. I mean, he's a he's a big comic and he's done one man shows. He's been on Letterman. He's done specials. He's done. He's written a book. I, I mean, there, there's no question. Berbiglia is a big comic. So we're sitting there and he's telling me the story about how he ran into Chris in New York. They were both waiting for a light to change or something. They're on a street corner. So Mike thought, he was wondering in his mind, does, does Chris Rock know who I am? Let's just assume he does or at least say hi. And you, know, you have that moment where it's like, hey, Chris. Chris looked at him, not registering. And he said, I'm Mike Birbiglia. I'm a comic. And Chris Rock in that moment, as Mike describes it, had really no idea who he was and said, oh, yeah, well, you know, good luck with that or good luck, or whatever. Not dismissive, but polite. But he had no idea who he was. I know what that feels like, because you have that moment where it's like, you know, if I see Larry David or anybody who, who, I, who I don't know if they know me, and you kind of you know, wander around, or you say hi, hoping they're familiar with you, and a lot of times they're not. Okay, I have had the moment. But I have swear to fucking God, two seconds after, two seconds after Birbiglia, Tells that story. And now, well, look, we're up there. We're, for, we're up there for Mike's movie. He's made a movie, you know, and it's, uh, it's a big deal. But, okay, two seconds after he tells me that story, Chris Rock walks into the lobby, looks over at the couch and goes, hey, Mark. And, he, you know, I get up. I give him a hug. He says, people like the podcast. I say, yeah, yeah, it was great. How you doing? Everything all right? What are you doing up here? Ba-ba. He's got a movie up there. Okay. Mike stands up, walks over, and there's that awkward moment. And I introduce Mike to Chris, and then Mike tells Chris the story about running into him on the street, and uh, and Chris doesn't remember that, nor does he remember Mike, nor does he have any real knowledge of Mike. I could just you could just tell, and uh, and they they met and they talked for a minute, but and then then Chris went over and started talking to some other people. So me and Mike sit back down on the couch, and uh, it was just one of these moments where he's like, Isn't that, that was amazing timing. And I just looked at him and I said, yeah, I mean, that was a that was a special moment for both of us. And he just busted out laughing. It's the little things, folks. I mean, it's not petty, but it was hilarious in the moment. I'll tell you that. Oh, thank God for those. And thank God he appreciated it. And we got a huge fucking laugh. God, did we have a good laugh on that one? It was a good one. It was an undeniably sweet, painful laugh. I appreciate you coming. Thank you, Mark. I could not be more thrilled. This I, is, I'm a fan. You were at the, but well, just last night you were at the Golden Globes. Yes, right? fresh from the Golden Globes. Uh, <laughs> like I, I don't know you, so I'm like, I, I was looking at my watch, thinking like, ah, it's going to be hungover. It's not going to happen. But clearly, 
you showed up in a three-piece suit and you're not hungover. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I, I, I weather it well. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a long-term drinker. So. You're a pro. Yeah, exactly. So what what happens? Uh, were you uh, disappointed last night? I mean, no, I, I did not expect anything was going to happen. I, I kind of hoped that Kristen might get one, right? Because I thought she had the the shot in her category. But be, it, the Globes are weird because they kind of lump. You know, uh, comedy music and, and music comedy. together. So, I mean, Michelle Williams gave an amazing performance, but it's you know, it's, it wasn't particularly the funniest performance of the year, right? You know, and Kristen was just so awesome, but right. uh, but you know, I, there's no way we we're going to win the best the best comedy. No, just, no, the, the the artist is a runaway freight train. Have you have you seen the artist? Yeah, I have, and I it's have. great. It's really good. It's really good. There, I, I won't say it's perfect, but what movie is uh, right? Th- there's moments you go like, oh, that's why we invented sound, you right. know, because there's a couple of moments you just get kind of bored, but <laughs> right. it's so charming that it. The end. If you have any reservations about it, you feel like an absolute shithead because it's just it's so earnest and, and sweet. So I, okay, I'm, if I got to be by, have to get beaten by something, it's it's that. But didn't you find it interesting? Like I I, I know that well the foreign press whatever they are yeah. uh, is what it is, but. There, there was something that happened in Bridesmaids that's really never happened before. Mm. Now, now, granted, like you know, structurally, it, it's a it's a fun comedy. Yeah. It's a, and, and and but but in terms of what you did and and what you facilitated, really has never been done before. So it was sort of a breakthrough thing. And I yeah. under, and I understand the artist is an, a more artier film, and there's a lot of conceit there, and it's black and white, so we're right. supposed to pay more attention to it. <laughs> but in my mind, I thought it came down to you know something a breakthrough comedy for women versus you know a sort of snobby looking comedy that I have not seen yet. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> well, I appreciate that. No, you know what it is? It's it, comedy when you do it right uh, doesn't seem very showy and worthy of uh, award, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I, I could have, like any filmmaker, I could have like shot Bridesmaids differently and kind of made it fancier. Black with, and white. Yeah, with cool shots and really been cinematic with it. But then I would be completely not in service of the story and not in service of the, the cast and the audience. So that sadly, that's part of the thing when you're when you're a comedy filmmaker, you do have to say, all right, I'm going to let go some kind of show yourself. Look, all you know, like any filmmaker, I love nothing more than to kind of really figure out cool shots. And when I've worked, directed the show, and there's Jackie, I really got a chance to kind of play with that. But comedy, you just got to be in service of the story. Well, give yourself some credit. That shot of uh, uh, Maya Rudolph in the street <laughs> in her wedding dress right. shitting is, is really one of the great greatest cinematic achievements <laughs> like it's beyond special effects it's beyond the, the humanity and the humility of that shot alone and i'm sure you've talked about it is so memorable and so never been done before ever you should really give yourself credit i'm very proud and that and there's no brown there's no shit or anything it's no. all just implied which well, i'm yeah, very proud of the, you know the wedding dress protects it in a beautiful uh you know just flowing white gown exactly but she played that so beautifully and i have yeah, to assume so people funny. talk about because as a shot it to me it was like we just watched the the first moon landing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, comedy plays so well in a proscenium generally, you know, and that's why it's figuring out just what's the best way to show something off, and it it is a spatial relations. I can I can get very fancy and, and then sound like I actually have a well, scientific dude, I, method I like to that. it. No, because it, it you really spatial relations is all what comedy is about, especially physical comedy, and, and it's like when I worked on uh, directed a lot of The Office, and occasionally the the camera guys who are fantastic. I mean, they're actual documentary camera guys, so yeah. they really go in the moment. Yeah, but their instinct is to. Cr- 
crash in on, on close-ups constantly because that's what you'd be doing in those. Because that's the style of documentary that right. they're mocking. Yeah, exactly. But what you ha- what happens then, you lose kind of this spatial relation. Like, a perfect example was there's some, we had some shot where it was Michael Scott kept walking away from Jim and then walking back to him, like kind of wanting to ask him something. And they kept crashing in. I was like, no, you got to stay wide. So we see Michael coming towards us and you see Jim in the background and you see his whole body turn and go back because that's, that, so there's just something funnier about that because you know, oh, that's where he is. And that's why I, I have problems with a lot of um, direction in action movies because they, they there's this whole school where it's it's all that it's kind of like the born identity where it's all yeah. crashed in and it's it's super shaky cam and it's in close ups but there's no geography to it right and there's a high contrast element now to color which is yeah weird. yeah right well I think that's an interesting point but also you have to have these because physical comedy is not easy I mean it, you know for people. Mm-hmm. Performers who do physical comedy, I have a, a, so much respect for it. Yeah. Because I'm a cerebral guy, you know, I, I get a joke and I do my own things, but yeah. to be a conscious physical comedian is a real gift. Yeah. And, and it, there needs to be a logic to it. Yeah, well, absolutely. And you need to, I imagine when you're shooting it, it you need to be able to repeat it. It can't be what yeah. is, oh, they, they, we're never going to get that again. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Daffy Duck blowing himself up. I can only go once. Yeah. No, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there really has to be a reason for the physical comedy and bad physical comedy is well good physical comedy is like in the pink panther there's a whole method of why he trips coming in and there's something that he doesn't see or out of his hubris or whatever he's trying to be cool and he doesn't see this thing and he trips that's funny what's not funny and you see this all the time is like they walk into the room and they fall down and it's like well why did they fall down are they just stupid or you know it's a it, cheap laugh yeah it's not funny in itself just like in bridesmaids i mean the you know people a lot of the takeaway is Oh my God! They're vomiting and, and shitting and this and that. It'd be hilarious. That's vomiting and shitting. Vomiting is not funny at all unless you find the right context for it. Well, you know? well, yeah. To set the food poisoning to take place when they're all trying on. Counts, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a good setup, and yeah. so so it's grounded in something we can all identify with, and it almost seems reasonable. Yeah, and it's the lead up. Everybody yeah. like pretending they're okay. And is it hot in here? No, I'm mm-hmm. fine. I'm mm-hmm. fine. I'm fine. You know, that's what's funny. And then you know, then we we really you know kind of grappled with do we show the throw up or not. Um, is what our editor Bill Kerr kind of calls that it. was the big decision. Yes, exactly. Well, after lots of stuff we did because he calls it like the, it's the McDonald's ham hamburger theory, which is you can feed somebody like a, the biggest greasiest hamburger and they'll yeah. eat it happily, and but then ten minutes later they're gonna go like shit. Why did I eat that? Right. And the same thing like oh why did I laugh at that? That's so terrible. Unless there's kind of something you're you're relating to in it. Yeah. Well, I mean well, the the vomit was not yeah you know, the half of it. it you know. Uh, Bad. Melissa and Megan sitting Me- on the sink. Megan, Megan sitting on the sink. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about that is, and I don't want to dwell on it too much, is <laughs> everyone's been in that situation. Yeah. It's just you never, you, most men, and I would assume most women, don't ever want to think about that situation in such a public format. Yeah. But it's like classic, you know, shit and farts are funny. There's nothing you can do about it. Amen to that. I, <laughs> farts will always make me laugh. I am so, people, I somehow got, a, I don't know if I got this reputation or not, but because like, of Freaks and Geeks, people kind of think I'm slightly classier with by comedy, but if you look at Freaks and Geeks, every single episode has a fart joke or reference to farts in it. I, was that on the uh, was that on the board? Make yes. sure to include farts. Include joke. farts. <laughs> well, I mean, at that age, when people are in that yeah. part of their life, I mean, farts are a big deal. What's funnier than that? A fart could ruin your life at that age. Amen. And that that's my favorite kind of fart <laughs> to to portray is the one that sneaks out and <laughs> and, and that's it in front of your favorite girl. Yeah, and you're remembered forever <laughs> as the guy who farted, <laughs> who hasn't had that situation. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit about how you. You got from uh, from from A to uh, huge. I mean, was <laughs> he? Huge. Was no, no, I, you're very well respected, and and you are pretty huge no, in the thanks. world I run in. No thanks. Uh, but was the intention? Where did where, you grew up? Where in Michigan? 
Uh, right outside Detroit, about 20 miles outside of Detroit in the suburbs. Back when Detroit was still a city? Uh, yeah, although we went through the riots and everything. I remember driving. My, my cousin lived uh, on one side of Detroit. We lived on the other side in the different suburbs. And I remember getting picked up to go spend the weekend at his house and going past the riots. We just saw the whole city on fire. In the really? Yeah, what year was crazy. that? 80s? Uh, 68. Oh, really? So yeah. you were a little kid. Yeah, yeah. Because you were like my age. How old are you? Yeah, uh, 49. I'm 48. There right. Isn't those weird? Isn't those recollections strange? Because you have, I still have recollections of watching Vietnam on television. Oh, to- oh totally. My, what, some of my scariest memories were, remember they would show the, the news and then they would have this kind of uh, graphic. It was just really low-end graphic. Count? Yeah, how many people were killed? And I would just like watch it, like you know, and I'm oh, it was terrifying. Yeah, and, and there were actually journalists that were out in the uh, jungles occasionally, and it was just just chaos. And yeah. I remember, don't you have a, a real uh, recollection? Because the hippies and that movement, the youth mm. movement of that time, made a profound impact on me. Like yeah. for some reason, even at age whatever it was six, I'm mm. like that. I want to be part of that. Oh no, totally. When can I grow a beard? Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> well, everything was so graphic then. I mean, it's like you know the, the footage of the all you know the most recent wars. It it doesn't have that same thing. Well, the, well they sterilize it, and and it's also on a different terrain, and, every, and yeah. all imagery is managed now. Yeah, and it was something about that that handheld black and white kind of out there. It was so grainy and so. It was like that really made the war. That's I think that's what deglamorized war more than anything is all that footage. And also at that time, especially with Vietnam, I think once the chaos began and once things sort of get out of control, it seemed like all the soldiers had some sort of unique approach to how they were going to outfit themselves. Yeah, yeah. So there wasn't this sort of consolidated, kind of mechanized look of the military. Yeah, it just looked like a, a free for all. Yeah, it's like a ragtag team. I know. And my my dad owned an army surplus store, so we used to get all that stuff in. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my father's he always said the hippies made me. Rich. Right. Not that he was that rich, but it's always, you know, everybody. That's why we, Lindsay Weir and Freaks and Geeks wears an army jacket because it's a tribute to my dad's store. Really? Yeah. So, okay. So now, did you grow up? Uh, where, are you Jewish or what? Um, let's say my father's side was Jewish, but then his, my grandmother, who was the most, you know, stereotypical Jewish grandmother, became a Christian scientist. Really? And then he met my mother, who was uh, from a British background, and they were Episcopalian, and she was, and her family were Christian scientists. So I was brought up by Christian scientists, but it was the most Jewish household under the name of Christian science. Because apparently, back in the 20s and 30s, a lot of Jews, uh, you know, turned into... Um, Christian scientist, and that's what, that's Mary Baker Eddy's yeah, yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been to. Have you been to the uh, the headquarters in Boston? Isn't yeah. that where it is? Oh yeah, when I was a, when I was a teenager, I was in the church, and you had to like go once a year. Did you go into this... the map room, which is that weird uh, glass oh, yeah, and globe yeah. room where you can talk into the wall and hear it on the other side? Oh no, totally. That's, that's all I remember. <laughs> yeah, well, I, my, my memory of being there is it went to some church service and. There's a woman in the crowd with an enormous goiter on her neck, like the Can't size of a it. human head. Yeah, yeah. No, just like I remember that was the first moment I was like, something's off here. Like, I think that could be taken care of. <laughs> it's like, seriously? <laughs> Did you have to deal with that in your life where you were ill or, or you had a family member that was ill and they were like, oh, no, just pray and it'll go away? Well, no, no, fortunately, I was pretty healthy growing up, so we didn't have it. But my, my, my dad, you know, towards the end of his life, he got in his 60s, he got diabetes and he, I guess he didn't treat it for a long time. He didn't go to the doctor. He didn't know, and he lost his eyesight. Wow. So that was a friend. I'm like, oh, boy, that's not good. But was it just because he didn't know or because he was operating in within the faith? I think it might have been both. I think it might, I think probably when he found out, he tried to power through it with prayer, and it's like, you know, it, it's tough. I, I, I really had a 
split with it when I turned about like 17 because I was such a science head, like so yeah. into sci-fi and studying science. And the minute you start studying science, you know, religion <laughs> hangs on for its uh, dear life. And yeah, that. isn't that odd? Because my, my father was actually a, a doctor and he, he'd had a couple of incidents where, where they would not where where Christian scientists would not allow treatment yeah. or medication, yeah. and it's a really awkward position for. It's really one of those areas where science and faith really go head to head. Oh, totally. Where you have a Christian scientist who's dying, and you're like, "We could fix this," and they're like, "No, God will take care of it." Yeah, you know. And the weird thing is actually um, not in defense of it because I'm really I I left a long time ago, but they they do say technically only handle what you think you can handle so the ones it's always you know there's nuts in every religion the ones are just like no 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 it's like wow you know that's that's crazy and unfortunately my dad once you know once he lost his eyesight then he started you know then, t- then taking his therapy but then it was too late and then he got parkinson's and you know but it it literally killed my mom because she was so hardcore into it not in like a dogmatic way but just she liked a world where people weren't sick and you didn't have to worry about doctors because then she was afraid of it. And then suddenly my dad going through all this medical stuff and she just had to be there constantly doing the medicine. And I think it literally killed her. I mean, she just one day just died, you know, and she was always like full of life and energy and, and everything. How, how soon after your father? Uh, no, it was, it was way before. Oh, really? Yeah, which was the nightmare because, you know, dad was just really declining and my mom was tons of fun. It was kind of like, okay, once dad's gone, this will be, you know, then we can Get travel with mom and everything. Yeah. So I hope she doesn't die first. And then, you know, then she went down and then two years, you know, and then he hung around for two years. Suddenly she died? Yeah, just, I mean, literally out of the blue. I saw her, you know, two nights before. My wife and I had uh, dinner with her. My last image is her, like, on the elevator, like, giving her a friendly wave. And then, yeah, then uh, two days later they called up and said, like, uh, we got bad news. And she just, yeah, one didn't get up one day. So you think that, you're saying that, like, uh, the denial that was afforded her by the religion was very exciting until she realized that people do get ill and, and something. Yeah, it, it, she it, she was a very, had a very uh, rose, you know, rose-colored view sure. of the world, and uh, which used to drive my, my grandmother on my father's side crazy. She's the always, Jewish side. Yeah, she'd always be How like, can you be so happy? Well, that was her, her whole thing. She would do this face. I always wanted to punch my grandma. She would always do this thing. She'd go like, you know your mother. She said, Everything has to be happy, happy. And she'd like, make this insane kabuki face. I'm just like, shut up about my mom. But they, boy, they, it was like our oh, our household. I mean, well, that's my it. grandmother and my mom. Oh, boy. Really? They hated each other. Really? Always. I, I was a, a kid. Well, did, who, they all, did they all live together? No, but my oh. grandmother lived right by us. So right. my 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 cousins, my you know my my dad's brother and his family lived on the other side of Detroit. So we were right at ground and zero. And they were still Jewish. Yeah, uh, no, no, they're all Everyone. Christians. Everyone's Christian Science. But you still had this weird cultural uh, affiliation with being Jewish. Yeah, it was just level. everything, you know, under the, all the DNA was there. Right. And so that's how it worked. Which is what defines most Jews. Yeah. It's, it's just, the, it's just exactly. the DNA and the weird quirky behavior. It's in us. That's right. yeah. <laughs> but we were ground zero, so we lived right by Grandma, so we had to go see, you know, she was always with us, and she hated my mom. And, and my mom also, again, because of her rose-colored glasses, wasn't used to that way of looking at life, which is, you know, my grandmother just kind of everything's, right, you know, right. putting stuff down. And, right, uh, right. So, Nothing's good enough. Yeah. And she took it very personal. It wasn't until I got married, you know, my wife is Jewish and she like told my mom, you know, wet, long after my grandmother was gone, like, no, you don't understand. This is how, how it wasn't you. This yeah. is kind of how it works. Now, are you raising your kids Jewish? Uh, no kids. And uh-huh. uh, if I, no, but I, I'm, I'm total atheist. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I went hard, hardcore off the way. <laughs> well, that, well, that's interesting because, 
like I, you know, I do you talk about atheism? I mean, would you have conversations about it? Do you, or, or is it just that you know, it's just where you're at? Yeah, I don't, I don't push it because I, I, I never want to make anybody feel weird about what they believe, and if it works for them, it's fine. If, if some, if, if their belief starts to interfere with my world, then right. I'll, then I'll kind of take it on. But I'm, I'm not. I, Has I, that I, happened? No, fortunately not. Fortunately not. I mean, other than like if you know you're at a dinner party and somebody just drives you crazy. Well, let me just ask you for my own because my, like I'm I, you know, I don't align myself as an atheist, but I don't believe in God. But I don't find myself worrying about any of it too yeah, much. Yeah. But do you find that like do you in terms of the basic terror of being alive? How do you handle that? Uh, you know what? <laughs> yeah, through comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and dressing nicely. Yeah, dressing nicely. I mean, there is there is something to that. I think. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I I would love to live in a world where every all the men wear suits and ties, and the women wore beautiful dresses. You well, know. I think it's about order. It's yeah. about having some sort of uh, decorum and oh, some yeah. uh, consistency in your life. If life was just one big fancy cocktail party where everybody <laughs> did the right thing, I would be so happy. When did you become that guy, though? When did you like? I'm wearing a three piece suit every day. I, when I was a kid. I mean, I got into it when I was a kid. Uh, I what loved inspired fashion. you? Oh, really? Just fashion? You know, what, I think. I just watching movies and stuff, and I just like the look of it. I read early when I was a kid. I was obsessed with Groucho Marx and read a biography about him. And one of the things it said that he would dress up all the time, and he had a very low opinion of men who didn't dress up. Uh-huh. So I was kind of like, oh, so that kind of sparked in my head. And then my mom just, you know, all, my mom all she needed was any sign of like you were into something, and she would just enable it completely. Right. I was an only child. <laughs> we should. Oh say really? That. Yeah. So I had that going for me. So you had the uh, the the imaginary world. Yes, exactly. Well, now what brought you to Groucho? Because if you really think about it, it seems like the the exact scene we're talking about in Bridesmaids is a Marx Brothers scene. Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, in, you know, the scene in like in that moment in the in the in the bridal shop. Yeah, I mean, and every, everything that comes after that, the sort of group nature yeah. of the comedy, the group chaos, and also the the different types of comedic personalities yeah. that were involved. I mean, that was a, a fairly straight up Marx Brothers or- orchestration of comedy. Yeah, you know what it was? I had a, a religious experience. I've had more, like, I, religion means nothing to me because my religious experiences have been because of movies and television and music and all that thing. Mm-hmm. And um, my big religious experience was they re-released when I, you remember this? When we were when we were kids, they re-released Animal Crackers in the theaters. Okay, yeah, I so, do kind of remember that. Yeah, and my mom, my mom, God bless her, she would always try to encourage me to to you know to get into stuff and she was like you have to come see this movie we're gonna go see it so we went to this huge theater uh, far from our house like uh, a big nice old theater yeah it was the americana it was like where they would always premiere like star wars and okay stuff. yeah so the huge place so we got in there and it was half filled with um like college <laughs> students uh-huh and they went crazy over the film and i remember just sitting there like in an out of body experience. Like, so, how old are you? Oh God, what was I? Probably like seven. I so think. this is like so sixty nine. So this is a pretty arty looking bunch of college students. Yeah, I'm imagining. Oh, right. totally. Right. Like real cool. So you're kind of like, ooh, they're so cool. Yeah, yeah. And they're like losing their losing their shit. And I, it's, it's like elevated me. Like I want to do that. Like I filled with this kind of you know. You want to create that kind of excitement? Totally, totally. And, and what, what music was? Uh, what, so that's one religious experience. What was the music one? The music one was uh, when I was I uh, got to college. I was all I cared about was comedy. You know, I wouldn't do drama. I didn't care anything about that what did, when, in, in and what did that look like when you went to college so all you did was comedy you weren't doing stand-up uh, i was actually I, I did start doing stand-up in, in when i was 15 years old um I, I there was a comedy it was when you remember when make me laugh came on yes yeah and that was that was the thing that i think started the whole comedy Bruce club baby movement. man bomb yep exactly and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah but mike binder who was also local he was a t- detroit guy mike binder was a very funny guy so funny as a stand-up he was a very he's a the fact that he didn't stay in it 
you know, for a career yeah. was sort of our loss because, yeah. you know, as it, he was like a golden boy. I mean, he was like this 20 year old kid. Oh, totally. And I, he was so fucking he funny. Was, I mean, we would watch him and it just blew my mind because he was so funny and he was local. So it was kind of like, we well, must have been like, I could do it. 18 years old then. Or <laughs> I was, oh, I was 15. But when, how old was he? he oh, he, oh, yeah. He, oh, yeah. He couldn't have been more than 19 yeah, or yeah, 20. He looked he, like he was actually had, he was kind of the baby face kid or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Are you, do, are you friends with him? I've met him, but no, I don't really know. Because he's Mike. a filmmaker now. Oh, I know. He's I really admire what he does. All right, so okay, so you did stand up a little bit, or how long did you do that for? Uh, well, I did when I was fifteen. I did it for for a, a few months, and I was horrible. I mean, just horrible. But but what was your approach? I mean, who were your models? Uh, God, to, you know, you had to copy everybody. I was doing Johnny Carson style jokes. Oh, I remember, like, one of my punch lines sure. was about if what was that? it was like something about Godzilla, and if he came and attacked here, you know, and after you, after you kill him, so he's laying there. What do you do with his body? Body, and then my punchline was like, what you do is you send it to New Jersey because they won't notice the smell. It's like, why am I making a New Jersey joke? I live in New York. I, you know, I live in Detroit. I've never been to New Jersey in my life, but yeah, used you, to make those you, jokes. You actually were in a city that was just equally a yeah, shitty. I know. I had the perfect setup. If <laughs> yeah. I had said Zug Island, I would have got a huge laugh. Right. You, but you went with the classic I New powered Jersey. through. Exactly. <laughs> So, uh, oh, so, so music, but, but the, so musically it was, so all I cared about was comedy. I get to film school, uh, not to film school, to you, uh, Wayne State University and took a film class. Yeah. And they showed the conversation. Film history class? Yeah. So, oh, the conversation Gene Hackman Coppola's movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that soundtrack, this that David Shire piano soundtrack. It was all jazz, right? No, it, it was all minimalist piano. Right, there. okay, right. And it's the most haunting score, but it was that kind of thing where you go like, oh my God, like it, suddenly I didn't care about, I, I saw there's something beyond comedy in this marriage, when I mean, you can marry the the music to the to the sound you know to the picture right it was like that that was another like so oh my that was God. a mixture both of these are you know that was mu music and kind of connected with film as well yeah very much so. and and what about TV what were the TV uh... Uh, oh gosh it was I'm, thank my mom again um, she had read when All in the Family was coming on uh -huh. that it was a great show right and she sat me down in front of TV and she said I want you have to watch this show because it's supposed to be a very important show uh -huh. and I watched the first episode of All in the Family and that blew my mind because I hadn't heard that kind of laughs on TV before. And also that that type of addressing the cultural kind of uh, cauldron that was happening. Totally, totally. And just that, I mean, the performances on that are so pure. I, I, th I mean, you know, Carol O'Connor's performance on that show is is one of the most masterful things I've ever because that that defined I think I've took taken more of my comedy from his performance, just in general, just because the ability to be grounded and be real, but be so over the top with all, right. oh, gee, but, but all, but all that physicality. Yeah. I mean, it's really a masterful, oh, it's, yeah. it's one of the best performances ever, I think, anywhere. And he was great at the slow burn. Oh, you know, like he had, you know, like as angry and as, uh, and he had a lot of heart, obviously, and the character was fully grounded. But boy, he could take a moment and oh. just let it burn. That's those slow turns. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then, but then all the interaction, and you know, I, I got to work with um, Bill Macy, who played, uh, you know, Maud's husband uh, oh, on sure. the Maud yeah, show, yeah, yeah. and he was interesting because he said. You know, normally he was always saying like louder, louder, because it was from a like a, a you know theater background. Right. So it's weird to watch it because it's very theatrical, and yet I completely buy it. As Who opposed, used to say that, Lear? Uh, yeah, no, apparently Norman Lear. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was his whole thing because he wanted this to be like a theater piece, like throw your voice to the back of the auditorium in vaudeville too. A yeah, bit. yeah, but somehow it, it worked in a way that like when I watch a lot of sitcoms over the last ten or twenty years. It feels so stagey to me, but but 
for some reason, they were more stagey, but it just worked because I think they all believed it. And that's always been my theory on comedy. Is like, what? as long as you believe it and you love these characters and you believe in the character and the person playing the character likes the character they're playing, then you can go anywhere with and it. And I, w- I would imagine that, you know, during All in the Family and during, uh, you know, even Maude and some of those early ones that were per- you know performed in front of a, a live audience that wasn't playing a part. Yeah. Uh, it seems like the audience is expected to play a part and they're completely yeah. tolerant of the experience and if they have to reshoot 20 times and they got a stage manager yeah. that the idea of projecting even if he brought the sound levels down mm-hmm. once he edited the show mm-hmm. the connection yeah. that, that they were reaching out to the back of the room and pulling the audience in by virtue of their performance. Yeah, you feel the audience being surprised constantly. Right. It's the same thing why I love British comedy because for some reason British audiences you just feel they're in the moment right. and yeah, you don't feel I don't know for some reason I just don't feel like American audiences are in the moment on a lot of those soundtracks I, I will say I don't watch it a lot but when I've when I've gone past the Big Bang Theory that seems to have that feel like people are really aggressively well I know that laughing. show is uh, funny to a certain like my mother likes that show mm-hmm. you know my mother is uh, I'm not allowed to say her age but she's not you, you know what I mean but she <laughs> right. she finds it funny so those yeah. characters must be doing something yeah exactly so when you came to Hollywood so what was your degree in uh, with uh, in school would you well I, I did I did um, two years at Wayne State University as a as a uh, mass communications major. Sure, the, the broad. Yeah, exactly. Everything <laughs> falls under there: entertainment, <laughs> PR, whatever. Right. You're writing those TV scripts that yeah. like yeah, are you know, have the line down the middle. Uh-huh. And it's like oh yeah, action yeah, on yeah. the side. Yeah. <laughs> but then I. But what happened was I um, in '81. I wanted to get into showbiz. I wanted to be an actor because uh, I'd always been acting and doing all that. And um, called to, to Hollywood, all the studios, to see if uh, they were looking for actors. You, you know? just called? Yeah, I would call because really? somebody sent me a, a copy of Variety and it would have like you know the studio and their oh, main and the, number. Right. And they go, do you need actors? <laughs> did you really do that? Oh, I did totally. <laughs> they go, well, we need CPAs. And it's like, well, I don't, I'm not, I don't do that. You but, just called general. Like, oh, yeah. you, 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 I cold called. <laughs> but then the last one on the list, Universal Studios, I can only say, well, we're looking for tour guides. And when I was a kid, we had come out here and taken a tour. And I always remember, remember at the end of like Animal House and all that when they'd have the thing of like, you know, when in Hollywood, go right. visit. You know. Sure, sure. So I was like, I'm in. So they said, we got to be here in two days because that's when we're going. So I had I finished my last final exam, got my friend Mike uh, Sampson in the car, and we drove straight through like alternating shifts all the way, you know, without sleeping or, or stopping to get here. And I, and I went into the uh, the audition or the meeting for it and got taken into the training program. Uh-huh. And so uh, then got basically got hired to do it and, uh, and spent the summer doing being a tour guide. Well, and that was when the big draw was the uh, Red Sea, right? It was before yeah. the shark. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it was. No, we had the shark. Oh, you did. Shark had kind of just come in, okay, and I fell in Jaws Lake once. It, right, that was, it was during a tour. Oh, really? Yeah, because we, we were going, we were on the tram, and it like you know how the dock would kind of go to the oh, side. Yeah, 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 yeah. And some woman had like a clog, and it fell into the water. So she you goes like, my foot. yeah. So I, I walked back up the plank to get. I was reaching, and the dock reset, and I fell in. <laughs> and I thought I was gonna get killed because actually, because that Jaws thing was coming back, and there's all these gears and pulleys under there. It's like, oh shit, I'm gonna like get die. In. You're gonna die by the. You're gonna get killed by a mechanical shark. <laughs> exactly. That'd be a noble way to oh, go. Oh, what a what a sad way to go. <laughs> Were people concerned? Uh, no, they didn't uh, care less. They, they were all laughing and taking pictures. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I want to find one of those pictures someday. So, okay, so you're the guy who's uh, who's uh, dry, you know pu- pushing people through this tour, yeah, being entertaining, yeah. And, and, and then I had another religious religious experience, yeah. which was went to the the opening day of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark at, at the Chinese theater, and just blew my mind. I think that's the first time I ever 
really kind of figured out what a filmmaker does. For some reason, I would always watch movies as an actor mm-hmm. before, and so like, oh, I want to be that, or I want, even like Close Encounters. My takeaway from that was like, I want aliens to come down and take me away. It wasn't like I want to make cool movies like that, right? But Raiders was kind of you- just suddenly go like, that's what movie making's all about. You could really feel that the power of the build and yeah. the, the montage, and you know, the- and again, like an audience going crazy. Well, that scene with the boulder, I that, think that was the that, that was the mind blower because we yeah. like it, that thing came down. I've never heard an audience since go that like just scream like that and that, that that i think i think you're right I, I and i think there's a few of spielberg's movies that are sort of mm-hmm. really kind of master's classes oh, God, totally. in building uh, momentum and building suspense yeah i mean i i don't want i'm not disregarding hitchcock or anything else but no, i mean jaws me. and raiders i mean just the way he edited those yeah, things yeah. is is pretty fucking amazing and close encounters i mean that's a masterful movie and every i mean there's been a lot of movies kind of made like that yeah and every time you watch it all you do is think like Wow, Close Encounters is a great movie. <laughs> That's all I can like think when I'm watching these other. Yeah, films. I got a little heady about Close Encounters. It, you know, at some point because I took film classes when I was in college. You know, film theory. I, yeah. I studied film criticism. But the idea that he had Truffaut there, yeah, and that the primary means of communication mm-hmm. with another uh, species from space was light and sound. I'm yeah. like, this is a metaphor about film, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a guy's reading into it, man. <laughs> it's pure metaphor. Truffaut's there, light, sound. Is- I think you're right, though. I like that, though. You do, yeah. Well, I- I'll give we'll give him credit for it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> have you met Spielberg? No, I've been uh, all this week. I've been at all these events that he's been at, and I've been too chicken to say hello. He seems like one of the the, the sweeter, more powerful people. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and I should go up to him because when we were doing Freaks and Geeks, it was at, you know DreamWorks, and that you know, so I actually you know he was he came to our first screening. I know he was in the back of the thing, and I wrote him once a thank you, and he sent me this note like how much he liked the show. Yeah, and, but I still have not had the nerve to go up and say really. Hello. And he's right there last night. You couldn't just uh, you know. I live in constant fear of going up to people and they go like get the fuck away from me or go like oh what's what's he doing you know like i'm so afraid of embarrassing moments that i just kind of want to <laughs> avoid them at all costs that's interesting because uh that as a comedic fan and you know per- perhaps a comedic yeah. performer which you've done mm. uh that transcending embarrassment is really part of uh, our drive oh totally and and you surrender to it though in these situations yeah well i love to portray it uh in you know in, when i'm writing stuff and filming stuff and shooting all that but i don't want to live it because it happens anyway because i always my, my whole problem in life is i'm always been an optimist like a real optimistic so i always think everything's gonna be great and so everything it, there's nowhere to go but down from there. Well, that that's true. You know, <laughs> Yo, you know, you could all everything can all you can be is underwhelmed. Yeah, I, well, I go the opposite way. Yeah, and, and now I'm finally, you know, as I become middle aged and finding some middle area, yeah. it doesn't have to be all black and white. Right, you know that. You at some point you just have to accept that life is frustrating and disappointing. And, I know, <laughs> I know. See, I always tell people like my my motto is expect the worst, but it's it, sadly it's not. I say that, but I still kind of like everything's gonna be great. I know secretly, and then it's like oh. So, so how do you not? Uh, you know, be you know constantly brokenhearted by. Uh... <laughs> I am. <laughs> I, I, if 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 it wasn't for sleeping, I would just be. I would have killed myself. I just realized <laughs> sleeping is the greatest thing because it just resets my mood every day. It's always wake up like it's today's gonna be great. Yeah, yeah. But and by the time I go to bed, it's like oh, oh god, everything's God. horrible. Yeah. I hate everything. Bring me to dreamland. I had that this morning. I'm like I'm in the middle of a good dream, and then you wake up and you're like, no, I'm not done yet. <laughs> yeah, no. And then yeah. you can't reset to it, and no, then it goes no, because so of nightmares. Yeah, and, like, oh, and someone else is in there. Like what? How? Who recast exactly? Especially a sex dream, it never comes back. No, no, you can't. Yeah, you know, you got to start over, and then you're kind of half awake, and then you're not sure it's a dream or am I actually doing this? Exactly. Although I am such a devoted husband, I've been married for 17 years now that ever since I've been with my wife, I've mm. never been able to 
have a completed sex dream. Yeah, they, I find that I'm, I'm not married anymore, but even now, like, it's rare that they finish through. I can't remember one where I finished. No, and I always, I, in the dream, I'm always like, I can't, I'm married, I can't, I can't. And even my wife, I like told her, she goes like, just have sex in your dream. It's like, but I don't know, because I'm always thinking like, what if it's not a dream, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, but it's know, the perfect way to get out of something. You're like, right. I thought I was dreaming, honey. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't have sex by yourself. You know that, right? <laughs> you all, you know, so, so I've been told. <laughs> I got to get me one of them computer things. <laughs> so, okay, so you're primarily acting, right? Because you, you did a lot of uh, yeah. episodic stuff and you yeah. showed up places. And I had like 15 years of like making my living as an actor. Right. Know? So yeah. that was the dream and, yeah. and, and you were kind of living it. But what, what uh, where did Freaks and Geeks come from? That was the first big project, right? Yeah. I, I, when I was an actor, I, I was like a regular on like five different TV series that all went like a year and then they get canceled. Which ones? Um, Start with Dirty Dancing, the TV mm-hmm. series mm-hmm. Uh, where I worked with McLean Stevenson. Um, then there was the Good Sports with Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett. Sure. And then uh, the Tom Arnold show, uh, uh, the Jackie Thomas show, and you worked with okay, so you worked with a lot of these you know fairly you know prominent TV actors, Farrah Fawcett, yeah. and uh, oh totally. And uh, did you have fun doing that? Oh yeah, oh, I loved it. I yeah. loved it. But 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 what would happen is I would always befriend all the writers. Sure. You know, and, and you know, I was working because I, I started out like on it's Gary Shandling show, which is all the guys that went on to the Simpsons and all great this stuff. writers. So, I mean, and just, Gary, too. Yeah. I mean, like the most amazing people. So for me, it was almost like, you know, the actor, other actors on various shows would be I'm like, kind of arguing about their lines. Or I don't like this. And I'd be more like siding with the writers, you know, and even like I'd make lectures to sometimes of the actors go like, come on, you guys, you have to say the line. Try to make it work three times. If it doesn't work, then we can address it, you know, but because they oh, were, I don't want to do this. You were saying that as up. an actor. Yeah, I was. I would kind of because. So I think that it seems to me that always in your heart was this directing thing. Totally, totally. I always wanted to do it. I knew I wanted to do it. I used to make you know Super 8 films when I was a kid with my friend Mike next door. And, the um, stop action kind where you drive around. Oh, yeah, we did. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Driving yeah. <laughs> 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 down the street on my yeah. ass and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I loved that. So, yeah, I was always drawn to it. And in every series I would be on, I would write an episode of the show and like give it to the writers and, and get their feedback and all that. And then the show would get canceled, but so we couldn't do it. But when did you sort of, uh, at what point like i guess with i don't know who wrote on the, the gary shandling show but i mean gary obviously a brilliant writer yeah. and w- when did you start meeting the you know the guys of your generation that you sort of seem to align yourself a little bit with like judd apatow and you seem to know ben stiller and all those guys well, yeah, a lot of it was from stand-up uh you know judd and i were stand-ups together and i i, I did stand up professionally for for about five years like in the, the oh that came back second half of the 80s yeah yeah i actually went hardcore at it and, uh, and where'd you work here yeah it was mostly west coast and um what, what was your club uh well I mean I I was actually kind of Hermosa Beach I was Comedy Magic a lot oh really yeah. yeah I just went down there for the first time the other night believe it or not oh you're kidding oh yeah, that, that was the best yeah he's a sweet guy yeah uh, what's his name Mike oh is it still Mike yeah yeah, well, yeah he owns the place forever. yeah so, and so uh, nice. he's a very interesting guy but that was uh, back when Jimmy Miller was running running it he was booking the place was he booking it but I think Mike yeah. always owned it yeah yeah definitely right definitely. Jimmy Miller right so that's you met Jimmy Miller so that puts you in line and that's where Apatow he was Jimmy Miller's guy yeah I, I don't even this was I think before he was though I mean I've well, known, I remember no Judge Lee was like 17 Oh, because Jimmy used to book a few clubs. I mean, his, yeah. you know, him, you know, Dennis Miller was the comedian, and right. Jimmy and Rich were the bookers and managers. Right. And, and uh, yeah, I remember meeting Jimmy back then. But yeah. now Jimmy's huge. Yeah, yeah. But he, but he got, <laughs> obviously got into it, but way back then as a, as a booker, as many of those guys do. So you knew Judd since he was, how- yeah, like seventeen years old. We all hung out at this place called the Ranch. Have you ever heard of that? The, it was like. Um, um, the Higgins boys and Gruber and, and all those guys, you know, and Dana Gould. And I mean, 
everybody came kind of came through those doors and hung out there and we would just we'd all do stand up and then we'd come back there and drink coffee and they'd smoke cigarettes I didn't smoke and we'd play poker all night and that was like our thing Judd for smoke years. cigarettes? No, no. And Judd Dana, didn't either. Dana didn't either. No, but it was it was, it was uh, Dave Dave uh, you know Dave Higgins and Steve Higgins. Sure. You know, Steve runs uh, yeah. SNL now. They were a little rougher around the edges. I, yes. can't, I can't see you, Dana, and Judd are kind of like the nerd crew. Oh, no, totally. And then, and then the Iowa guys were like, yeah. We didn't yeah. even really drink then. It wasn't even like beer and stuff. It was just sure. our pot. It was just like, okay, we're just drinking soda and eating too much. And, and when did you meet? Because uh, Sandler came in later, right? Yeah, yeah. I knew Sandler a, a lot just because of the stand-up circuit, and we were all auditioning together all the time, like uh, Spade. You know, all those guys were kind of my Right, that was like the late 80s, right? Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And then they all, they all got huge on screen, and, and I kind of, you know, I, I I didn't flounder around. I did pretty well, uh, but it was, it was, it wasn't until um, like the late nine or mid to late nineties when I was on Sabrina the Teenage Witch as with a, my friend Caroline. Yes, oh, we love Caroline. Caroline oh. Ray, yeah, so much fun, and, and uh, yeah, and that was great. And it was like I finally got on a show that was a hit. So it was like, oh, I did it. Finally, and you were every episode. Kind of uh, thing? Uh, no, no, I was one of those seven out of thirteen guys. But that was a big show, so you made a little. You made yeah, it was bread. pretty good, and they they would write me into extra episodes, so I really felt like I made it. And that's as an actor, you really you're just looking for that. Somebody's going to take care gig. of you for seven years sure hell yeah stash yeah. a little money that's the weird thing about show business it's hard work and people sort of dismiss that but if you yeah. can walk into something oh, where you God. can save a little money yeah and that's what exactly what this was and and then how did uh freaks and geeks come about because that was the was that the first thing you really actively developed yeah uh-huh yeah well I mean, it, it was it was a spec it was a spec uh, script that i wrote uh i mean the, the short version of it was i you know finished my first season on on freaks and had $30,000 in the bank. Right. Wanted to finally make my own uh, feature film. So during right. that time, I, I wrote this small movie that took place in a field with four people in one day. So it's like, okay, I can do this for $30,000. Because it wasn't video back then. It had to be 60 what millimeter. Was that? What was it about? It was called Life Sold Separately. And it was about um, four people who show up who don't know each other, who all show up in a field, right. having been given some kind of information from the beyond that a spaceship was going to come and take them away because it was a clunky metaphor for a, for a suicide. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, and they kind of meet in this field and they kind of feature figure it out. Yeah, feature length. Yeah, and then Pendulette's in it. Uh, Where's that movie? It, it's it's on my shelf. I call it <laughs> I call it the world's most expensive party day. <laughs> but it actually, it's actually I'm very proud of it. I, I do want to put it out. It's one of those things I'm just trying to figure out kind of what to do with it. And there's some music clearance I'd have to do, and, and I'm far too lazy to to do it. We but, couldn't remix the music and uh, maybe cut a deal with Netflix. And that's what I wanted. I actually think you know if I can sell it on iTunes or something, so it will find the light of day. I mean, look, it's not it's not great, no, but, but but people love you, and they they you know you've got an amazing uh, cult following and a lot of yeah. respect. I'm at, if you're not ashamed of it, you. You could put it out and no it went, it's my low rent sea caucus seven or whatever <laughs> that was the tone then those kind of you don't see those kind of movies anymore no totally that are sort of extended metaphors through conversation and and emotional uh subtext yeah oh no definitely but also the, the negative got fucked up because I, I hired this um this this guy it was a movie where i was bumping everybody up from a position they hadn't had had not you know to a position they hadn't done before but wanted to do yeah and had great success with it everybody from dps to you know everyone and i got to the negative cutting as like Here's this guy, and he worked at, at Christie's or whatever it was like, the editorial house. And he's like, I want to be a negative. And I've done a bunch. So it's like, this is perfect. We'll yeah. end it with this. And he completely fucked up my negative. Oh, my God. So where every every cut had a big flash at the bottom of the screen. So I've never had like a great copy of it. So it's all off of a work print. So it doesn't look great. But also it looks a little, maybe it's even cooler. It's got, it's got a uh, right. you know a Texas Chainsaw Massacre oh, yeah. look to a little, it. A little toe, toe pooper going on. <laughs> exactly. Very grainy. So what? What? Um, who else was in that? 
Uh, oh, is uh, D- Dave Gruber Allen, who was right. Mr. Rosso on sure. Freaks and Geeks, and yeah. uh, uh, Steve Bannis, who played Mr. Kachevsky, and then uh, my, my friend Carrie Coleman, who's great, and she's in a ton of commercials, and you, you know her and you see her. Yeah. And uh, then Penn and myself. I starred in it. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. So you that's another it. reason why I'm kind of going, I don't know if I want to release this. <laughs> Paul Feig vehicle. It's a sensitive Paul Feig uh, vehicle, uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually a guy who's on on uh, like uh, Prozac and stuff, but I go off my Prozac and then I kind of have a break. Oh, it's just really... to feel just to feel what it's like to be alive again. Exactly. Oh, I'm never releasing this movie. No more. <laughs> you got it's it. Never gonna see the light. Of Come day. on. So okay, so you wrote the script for Freaks and Geeks. Now let's yeah. let's talk about like you know before I get into uh, you know how how it, it came to be made that. Because to me, like I watched it, like I didn't watch it when it was on. I watched it recently after people telling me about it a yeah. lot, and I locked in and I watched all of it very, you know, in a row. Oh, cool! The whole thing, and um, and and it, it's my time. Mm-hmm. Like I'm the same age as you, yeah. so all of that stuff was incredibly familiar. Oh, cool! And and the interesting thing about high school is that for years the archetypes of high school remain the same. Yeah. That you know, it wasn't until you know, uh, you know, disco and punk, you know, kind of displaced everything. And now I don't know what it looks like now, but I imagine it's really still about outfits and music. I ha- I have to think that. that. That's why I wanted to set it at a period time. A because I just knew that period and want to recreate that. It's so specific and it's so interesting how important you know music was and the sort of like the separation. It was really just you got. You've got the jocks, yeah. you've got the stoners, yeah. and then you've got the nerds. Mm-hmm. And and that's it. No, totally. I, mean, you know, I, I say life is perpetual high school. I don't think that ever changes. I don't think that dynamic ever changes now in, at our age and in the workforce. There's always bullies and assholes and jocks. You know, right. it, it, so I just like to kind of portray that. But also, for me, it was just... it was fun to just show the people that hadn't been shown before in a way that they hadn't been shown which is how they really were because right. you know it's in years of like the nerd he's got tape on his glasses and, right you know, oh they, they, and all the kids were following they have problems with dating and they're really yeah. cool and it's like who gives a shit yeah the about jock that? has no depth and he's just a bully until yeah. he learns his lesson yeah. <laughs> right. then we love him and, yeah. he, and it's just like ugh, i didn't you know because I, I actually had great guilt in calling it Calling it freaks and geeks in the sense I didn't like the word geeks because we weren't called geeks back then. We had nerds, but we weren't nerds necessarily. There was like a couple of nerds in our school who were like hardcore nerds, like would carry the briefcase and kind of like sweaty and weird with the with the belt and the pants. Yeah, like literally where you're like, wow, he's really a nerd. Right, but we were just awkward kind of we sure. didn't have a group and right. so that to me was more like the geek that just kind well, of that was it, that was that. i was part of that too the one the 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 group or the or as an individual you could sort of move with a certain amount of finesse through all the other groups yeah yeah and i and comedy was the way through i mean that's Absolutely. i did comedy and i won the talent show twice <laughs> right you know no one's doing like my comedy magic act because i was a magician so too. which character is you for the most part? pretty much sam weir Oh yeah, yeah. Sam was me then, and then the Lindsay character was me in my thirties when I was making the show. It was okay, basically all my angst. The yeah, thirty-year-old yeah, yeah. thir- guy in his thirties has. I figured, yeah, smart sixteen-year-old girl. <laughs> right, right, right. That's interesting. <laughs> Grappling with religion he, and stuff. So. Well, yeah, Sam was great, and then the other guys were. I, well, okay, so you've got this script, and and then what happens? Because like that can yeah. die. Well, yeah, I, I, it was when I was out on tour with um, Life Sold separately. I like I spent a year trying to get into festivals, couldn't get it anywhere, and finally got into this thing called a Flix tour. Where, this is the movie. Yeah, where I had to drive around the country to these unknown colleges and show it, which was very good. But when I was out there, I was like, I'm gonna go crazy if I. Don't, don't write something so I wrote Freaks and Geeks in like two weeks and uh, it just came out really well and it's my wife who when she read it and loved it she was like you gotta send this to Judd 
You know, where was Judd at then? He had just come off of, um, uh, you know, uh, the Larry, Larry Sanders show. And oh, so this, he, this was like, you know, this was his moment to take yeah, the next Yeah, he had thing. made this huge, huge deal at, at, at DreamWorks. Right. Like, I mean, millions of dollars of deal. And when he saw Life Sold Separately, when I premiered it, you know, month, months and months earlier, he said, hey, if you have an idea for a TV show you think I would like, let me know because I got this deal. And I waited. And then when I had this, so I sent it to him and he like within 12 hours said, we want to buy it and let's, let's do it. Yeah. And uh, so it was a real whirlwind. I mean, going literally from the worst year of my life because I'd spent all my money on that on that movie. And then they called me up when I was in editorial from Sabrina and said, oh, we're writing you out of the show. So it was so like, it was oh, shit. Timing. Yeah, like I'm completely broke now. I, I bankrupted the family on this crap movie. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. God, isn't it weird now that you could make that movie for, uh, you know. That's what makes uh, me crazy. I know. But like with the technology we have now, you can do for, it for, for nothing. nothing. Yeah. Literally nothing. I have a flip camera. Every computer you buy has a non-linear editing system. Sure, I could it. do it on my phone. We oh, could yeah. do it on the phone. Yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> this when one I, has an editing system on it. I, I'm, <laughs> When I go to film schools, I'm always like, kind of like, go like, if you guys aren't making movies, you are fucked up because you, you no got, excuse, no excuse. It, down even distribution, you got you put. I mean, if I if we had that, oh, it's like an old man. If we had that twenty years ago, I would have gone out of my fucking mind. Sure, it's it's all on you to, oh, to yeah. you can get your movie seen oh, one way or the other. The, the shit I would have been cranking out wouldn't back it be amazing. Would have been awful. It's well, I well that's that's <laughs> I, that's the downside. I of mean, it. Sh- actual shit. <laughs> well, that well that's sort of interesting that you know with the facility of being able to do you know, have this much control and have this much technology at your fingertips and, and have it to be reasonable in terms of financial burden yeah. um, it's really interesting to see like people who come from a different generation that that's labored over you know using liquid paper yeah. you know and, and using 16 millimeter yeah. I wonder what it would have been like had their creativity been shot all over the place with the ability to do that it is very curious I mean it, it's the same thing with like with directors you know back when it was like the studio system and you work for a studio and you just made film after film because they just assign you movies. I mean, part of me goes like, I think that might have been the healthier way to do it because now, you know, somebody makes one movie and it's great and all the pressure's on. If your next movie isn't good, then you're kind of almost dead. Right. And it's like, God, who can learn their craft that way? I mean, that's why I started doing directing tons of television in the last 10 years because after Freaks and Geeks, you know, I tried to get some other shows off the ground and people wanted them and they didn't. So then I made a, a feature film, uh, misguidedly made this this uh, drama called I Am David, which I love. I'm very proud of it, but it's like, why am I doing a drama about a kid? Was that just a directing job? Labor camp. No, no, I wrote it and directed yeah. it. It was sent to me as a book and I really, I, I really kind of related to it. I think it was because my mom had died recently and it was about a kid kind of trying to find his mom so i think I, there's a lot of weird psychology for me going did it, on did it help you process any of those feelings kind of yeah kind of but but it also i think really put my career in a weird place because you're a comedy guy yeah it was just a weird follow-up to, to follow up you know this you know freaks and respected geeks. comedy drama show with like a story of a kid who grows up in a communist labor camp wow <laughs> is that is that available uh, yes that is available on dvd uh, um yeah well now the process with judd because it seems to me that it was a departure you know because judd had the you know had known you know i mean larry sanders was sort of a standard for uh, you know, blurring the line between comedy and, yeah. and drama, but having it be really considered a comedy. Yeah. Um, but it was very close. Yeah. So that tone, I think, was a, a unique tone. 
Yeah, I mean that the tone is very it's it's a it's a nice hybrid of of he and I. I mean that's why I love working with him because we kind of we, we kind of augment each other's weaknesses. I think sometimes I think he's he's really great at being like figuring out hilarious stuff, and I'm really good at figuring out kind of the heart and and, and all that. And, you know, but we're both good at we have elements of the other thing, so we both can kind of do the. the I talked to him a, a bit about it yeah. uh, in our discussion. Now, for you, you know, being that uh, that freaks and geeks is such a finite. Um, uh, piece of work that you know, and the people that like it know it. Yeah. Uh, wh- what 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 is your favorite moment in that in that series? Oh, God. well, uh, like lo- the one where where everything sort of like to you was well for me. I just just and it part it's part, partly wrapped up in because I directed it too, so I yeah. can't, I can't divorce that from it. I think it's when when uh, uh, Nick breaks up with Lindsay right before he goes into the dance contest. Yeah, uh, the disco dance contest is that moment where he. He's trying to put on a game face, and their, their their conversation is kind of coded, and like he's fine, and she's fine. That's cool, and clearly he's dying inside, and she's dying inside. And then she walks away, and he just like loses it, and then he has to make this long walk to the dance floor, and then dance it out. That whole thing going all the way through, then the flipping montages between the the the, the geeks playing with with you know Franco's character, and then. Siegel kind of having this cathartic dance on the floor. That to me is like that. That's where I go. Like that's kind of everything I ever wanted the show to be, and everything I ever want to portray. Because it's funny and it's sad and it's it's the music is kind of augmenting and visually, I think it's interesting. And also, there's that struggle for um, you know defining your identity. Yeah, that you know there are those walls you hit in high school where you know you're just fighting the fact yeah. that you're lost. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest themes in everything I do is outsiders, and it's also about who am I and what is my place in the world. That, that's I'm kind of obsessed with that because I don't. I think I'm constantly always trying to figure out my place in the world. I think everybody is. You know, even yeah. if you know what you're doing, you still don't know. I mean, like now, you know, I'm officially a, a film director, but it's like, what do I do next? I don't even know what kind of you know. I have so many things I want to do, but should I do something like this? You know, a, a project that nobody would think I would do. Or but do I think ultimately, through? you know, you do find your place in yourself. Mm-hmm. That you know that to acknowledge that this is what's interesting to you. I mean, the place in the world thing—that's a you know—that's a weird kind of you know ego struggle. And, and then mm. you know, how do you really know that you're there? Yeah, you know, I mean, if if like if you're still you're relatively humble about you know how you're thought of in the world, then you're mm-hmm. sort of self-effacing. But I, I, but you know, so you would think that would be enough. You know, like you know your place in the world, but there's still nah. no. It's weird. Like I still like when I see a great performance, I go like, oh shit, maybe I should still be acting. But then I'm like, <laughs> but it's like no, I wasn't that good of an actor. So why would I do that? And then, like, I'll you know hear a great song. It's like, oh, I should write more songs because I was a musician. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just it never ends, and it's so dumb. You know, but that's why I think you know. Then I look at guys like Scorsese, and you know, like that guy knows exactly what he wants to do. He loves this, and he's doing it and doing it. And I think it, in my career, it's almost why I haven't done more stuff because I'm always kind of like, well, maybe we should try this. And I'm always trying to. I'm jack of all trades, master of none, a little bit. It, it's it's my one drawback is I'm actually able to do a lot of stuff pretty well like I was always like a pretty yeah, good no, musician I, I know I get that yeah you I mean I, mean? I got guitars laying all over the yeah. place I used to do uh, photography and you know I consider myself this or that totally but the weird thing is is that and I don't know if you learned this about yourself is that there there's a certain sort of um the idea that if you just put more time into any of those things that yeah. you would be a genius at it is is a fallacy oh totally no, I, I i went through a period where i was gonna i wanted to be a saxophone player yeah. and this was i was in like i was like in my late 20s yeah. i bought this fucking saxophone and was trying to practice like somehow in my head i was gonna be charlie parker if i could just kind of put in a good sure. few months on this thing <laughs> 
And it's just, and you're like, what the hell? You know, but then, so I, but I recorded one song where I played like a saxophone track that was like the most basic thing. And so suddenly on my resume, like I play the saxophone yeah. and every, I had to join the Ameri- the, 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 the musicians union because I wrote and uh, performed the end credits uh, song for heavyweights, the uh-huh. movie. And so by joining that, they said, what instruments do you play? So I listed all the things that I could kind of get a tune out of. <laughs> and I kept getting all these calls. They're like, Hey, we have a session today and we, we see that you're <laughs> you know, a band. Banjo player is like, oh shit! Like I'm gonna show up at that thing and go, uh, clunk, plink, plink, plunk. Oh, I can't read music. I'm sorry. Get out. That's hilarious. Because I mean, I have found that in my in myself that kind of that that idea of like, you know, if I just applied myself, I could do this or that. Yeah, it, is sort of like um, it's it's it, 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 it's um, it, it's a little inflated, but it also reveals a, a real insecurity that there's this weird kind of like, oh, yeah. like you know, like yeah, I could do that. Oh yeah, but, but God forbid you ever get called on it, or you ever push yourself to that point. Oh totally, because that moment where you realize, and I think you see it in Freaks and Geeks, even in the scene you're talking about, where it's like, this isn't me. Yeah. You know that that's a hard realization to have. Yeah, yeah. For a person. Yeah, I mean that's that's why I think I love um, the, the 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 Parisian night suit episode because I mean that really happened to me where I actually that we recreated the exact thing that I wore that but I was a junior in high school. When right, I right, right. But it's that thing of like I want to be like a fashion player. I was going to be Mr. Disco or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm going to show the school and you get in there and the minute you're in, you're like, oh shit, I'm what a did clown. I? I'm a clown. Why did I do this? Everyone's going to beat me up and I look ridiculous and people are laughing at me mm-hmm. and then you're stuck and that so it's this is not me. <laughs> Not who I am. Yeah, but that that moment, man, where 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 that that depth, the depth of embarrassment, <laughs> and and the the it's it's almost like a nuclear bomb in your soul. Oh just yeah, sort of obliterates you. Yeah, and you got to walk through the day like that. <laughs> it's so heartbreaking, but so common. But that's what you need. You need those things. That's why I always kind of you know the, the, this whole kind of self esteem movement that go, has gone on in the schools. I feel it's it's destructive because horrendous. You, you need that moment of going like I am shitty at this, or I this is not who I am. What am you I? You need doing? to be humbled. Oh, totally. Or, or else you know you don't you don't know how to accept life's challenges and you don't know how to adapt to and and sort of find your yeah, way yeah. i have a real problem with uh, sort of blind positivity because yeah. i think it's some sort of it, it's kind of an exciting denial you, yeah you, you, you know and and then there's aggressive positivity where it's like how is that not negative oh you no know? totally fuck you you're being negative how, I, how do you frame that like that <laughs> <laughs> well I, I mean i i won't go as far as saying i'm pro bully but i do think there, I, I hate to say it because it was the worst times of my life, but something about that bullying, I mean, you learn something from it, even if you just go like, people are fucking assholes, but you got to know this, or I got to figure out how to navigate around these kind of people. Did or... you ever find, well, that's an interesting, thank God for the bullies or I wouldn't know who I was, yeah, I know. but I find that with myself, I mean, I've been a bully. And mm-hmm. I've been bullied. Mm-hmm. And as a comic, you know, you can usually sort of charm bullies. It's like Davy right. and Goliath or something. Like, you know, you <laughs> kind of outsmart them with your, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, I've, I've seen, I see both sides of that. Yeah, but I was always, see, I've, I, my, one of my problems in life, life is I, I'm so afraid of conflict, like, like chronically afraid of conflict that I just kind of, I'll avoid it or play into it weirdly. Like when I was a stand-up, if I had a heckler, I was the one who'd kind of like, oh, like try to kind of joke along with him or something. It could, never could be the guy like, hey, don't go to where you are and knock the dick out of your mouth or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, but I always felt like, God, I wish I had a little more of that aggression. Even, I mean, even today, I, I don't, 
have it, and I think it's a shortcoming. Like the thought of yelling at somebody is just like makes me want to die. Oh God, I wish I could help you. I, <laughs> I mean, because I'm good at yelling. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not, I have no problem with conflict as long as it's one sided. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but as soon as someone else engages, animals, I mean, people got yeah. a conflict. <laughs> you know, like, like I can yell, but when it comes back, I'm like, oh, I'm on. Uh, can we <laughs> game off? Yeah, yeah. Can we figure out another way to do this? <laughs> but now in because uh, Judd's favorite moment was the Havershack, you know, watching. Well, yeah, that's that's him. That I mean, that is his life. So this was both like about like you guys as a personal experience. Oh yeah, and, and we I, very much started living out our you know our lives and problems in our life through the show. All the divorce stuff, all that kind of stuff. That's pure Judd because my parents were together their whole life. Like I didn't. And you guys wrote most of the stuff together, or how did it work? Yeah, I mean, we we would break it all together, and we had a room full of great writers and stuff. But uh, yeah, we, we would. It was you know he and I just kind of. I'd always rewrite everything, and then he'd get in there and do it. And well, it's yeah. interesting because you know he's very clear. Like you know, uh, as he gets older, like he wants to have some peace of mind. He wants yeah. to be happy, and there's a very active journey yeah. towards finding that. Mm-hmm. And and do you do you share that with him? I do. I mean, the, I think the difference is I don't have kids, and he does. Right. And I know he's very like that. That is his world, and it's great. I I, I love that he has that. And for me, you know, I've been married for 17 years, like I say, but I don't, there's, there's, I think I'm always still searching around. I think not having kids weirdly ungrounds you in that way, but I don't mind. I've never regretted it in a minute of my life. The thought of having kids even today makes my stomach go into nuts because I just just want to have that panic. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to like explore it. I want to try everything. And so I think I'm less looking for peace and looking more for satisfaction, (laughs) looking for success isn't the right word because that that's such a weird thing but just the ability to make sure that everything you do is is good well i think that it seems to me that you know you have a certain acceptance over of of what the the human struggle is like and yeah. i think that documenting that is is important to you yeah. that, that there are certain things about being a person you can't avoid yeah it, it's interesting because it's as an atheist mm you have to have a practical place yeah. and there's certain things you have to accept. Yeah. Whereas I think that when I talk to Judd, there's a spiritual tone yeah. to some of the things he's, he's saying. Well, he's very spiritual though. I mean, he right. reads a lot of that stuff and I found I was much more, I was in better shape when I did believe in God, I have to say, because when that gets pulled out from under you, it is kind of like, oh shit, the center cannot hold like, well, yeah, then you have to, do, you, you have to deal with the futility. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then my religion becomes the projects I'm working on. I mean, right. really, and that's why, so for me, fear of failure is, is just the most driving thing in the world. I, it like it drive. It keeps me up at night. It, it just doing something that's not good. That it, it, that sucks. So like you know now of course I should be enjoying bridesmaids and all the success of it. But all it does is make you go like oh fuck the next thing. If the next thing is not good, you know, or if it's it, 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 so that just like keeps me up at night. Like what do I do next? What do I do next? So you know it's there, right. There's not a lot of peace of mind, but I'm I'm thrilled that I get to do what I do. But it's and it's you're still doing good. Well, I think it's very impressive that you're conscious of the fact that you know I mean when you I mean because you've directed. The, a lot of episodes of The Office, yeah. Arrested Development. You're obviously a respected, uh, you know, comedy director, mm. you know, in television. But you were very aware of the fact that you know I need to get these chops in place. Yeah, I need to learn more, and this is a hands-on way to learn it. Yeah, I mean, it was totally film school for me because you know when I did, you know, when I directed that last episode of Freaks and Geeks, it came out really well. I was happy with it, but I still there's a lot I didn't know. And I went to film school, and I didn't learn. You know, you don't learn that much. Then. No, no, no. I mean, you just got to Yeah, it's just basics. Now in heavyweights, you were just a performer in, or you? Yeah, re- yeah. Because yeah. I my uh, a guy. 
guy who I did comedy with in college wrote that, I think, was Steve, oh. Steve Brill. Oh, yeah. Yo, Steve. I love Steve. He's yeah, yeah. The greatest. He, oh, yeah, he, him and I were best friends in college. Oh, you're and, kidding. No, oh, I see the, Steve all the time. We both work out of the Soho house in L.A. That's a kind of our, our office for writing. Oh, yeah. I, we just started to reconnect recently. And oh, I mean, cool. we were we were we we did comedy together. We wrote a play together. We wrote a screenplay together. And then oh, we went uh, different directions. We were very young. Right. And we didn't really talk much to each other for like 20 years. And, and now back together. Ah. Kind of. Oh, yeah, good. Kinda t- it's kind of interesting. Oh, I love that. And, and I got to I got to give him a buzz, actually. Yeah. So now if we could to, to help people who are making uh, movies and, and, and <laughs> trying to do that, I mean, what what outside of the, the wide shot, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. what are, are some of the things you look for as a comedy director? Uh, I all I look for is is realism uh, uh, in honesty. I mean that's that is the bottom line. That's why Judd and I get along so well, work together. Well, so when well. you approach something like Arrested Development, though, which is a heightened world that that you know that has a skewed emotional yeah. core. Um, when, when you talk about honesty, what, what do you refer to in, in directing? How many episodes of that? You directed a lot of them. Uh, yeah, I, I did like seven, I think, yeah. or eight. Or, yeah. Um, to me, it's very that's emotionally honest. I mean, Will Arnett's performance, as crazy as it is, is one of the most vulnerable emotionally grounded real characters i've ever seen and that's why it's so funny because it's got it's got this you know this weird logic he has but it, it but he gets hurt really easily and right. like emotionally hurt and and all of them i really you know i just connect to it what i don't like is anything that's kind of like look how crazy we are you know and or just or just blowing through jokes yeah that's what i mean to me the comedy of the 90s comedy of the 90s felt a little like it got in that world of like Hey, check it out. I'm crazy, but you know I'm not really crazy. Right. You know, and it's like, I don't like that because then nobody's committing. And it, oh, that just feels like guys trying to get laid. To right. Me, you know? Right. Right. Like, look, I'm nuts, but yeah. I'm not because yeah. I'm cool. Right. So, yeah. So it's really uh, just trying to find the, the things that kind of that I, I think can, can showcase humans, you know. It, even it, that's interesting because no matter like even someone like Archie Bunker, you get to any of these things. If you really think about comedy, no matter how broad the comedy is. Yeah. Like like I guess you can go right to clowning. Yeah. Because then you you just have this manufactured you have an outfit, you have a costume, you have a tone. Yeah. But you can always feel the heart of it. Yeah. So it's not about like that character's ridiculous. It doesn't fucking mo- matter. A monster can show human emotion. Yeah. I never want to not believe something. To me the worst moment you can have in anything you do is if the audience goes like, oh come on. Yeah, that, that wouldn't happen. Or that nobody would do that. Then you're, you've lost them, and you've you've blown it. You know that's why I think, you know, I I like action comedies. If you, they can be dumb, but that's why they always fall apart. Because like at some point they have the funny villain. It's like, well, now there's nothing. Now there's no stakes because okay, he's crazy and he's goofy. You know, versus like a Forty Eight Hours, like holy shit, like these guys are executing guys. Right, you're like right. that's a real danger. That's a real threat. And I, I like that. Better. Well, isn't that interesting about some of the movies of the seventies, the, uh, the the yeah. comedy cop movies where people actually died? Oh, I mean, God, you don't totally. really see that. Like that that they, they think that's going to undermine the comedy. But like, yeah. I watched Freebie and the Bean recently, <laughs> and and they literally killed everyone in San Francisco. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. And, and there's still this wacky cop thing going on. Yeah, but I like because it's all about you know the, it's the dirty word if you're always in, if you're in development or whatever because everybody says stakes you got to raise the stakes which is just people say it and they don't think they know what they're saying or a lot of times you just don't it doesn't but it's true you have there has to be stakes there has to be a lot at stake whether it's your dignity or your you know i mean the easiest thing is saving the world of course that's the biggest stakes in the world but a lot of times that has no stakes because then there's no emotional thing for anybody other than we got to save the world but i'd much rather see the the story about the guy who's like trying to hang on to who he is right that those are stakes yeah and what do you think of the since you were there last night at the Golden Globes. I mean, what did you think of The Descendants as a film? I really liked it. I that, really That was liked a kind it. of an interesting Yeah. to to sort of have the center of your of your story, you know, speechless and in a coma. Yeah. 
Yeah. Was a, uh, what a device. Oh, huh? I know. And Clooney's so good in that. And it just, I mean, but that's, those to me are real stakes. There's, you know, no, there's absolutely. a lot he's trying to figure out. You know, I, I love Moneyball. I thought that was. I got to watch that. I it's didn't watch awesome. It. Yeah. And, and Pitt is so good in it. It just, and that, again, really high stakes. A guy trying, you know, his career on the line, but also like dealing with his past. You, you, you'll love it. it. It's great. And what, what, uh, so what are you kicking around now? I got a bunch of things in development. Uh, I had one thing that was going to go, and then we had a little trouble with one of the cast dropped out. So I kind of fucked it. Yeah. But, uh, but um, yes, yeah, so, but I, I'm really concentrating on trying to do, weirdly, I love doing things about women. Uh, I, all my friends growing up have generally been women. I'm always hanging out with the, with the girls. I find the comedy of women much more more uh, welcoming to me than guys. Sometimes the aggression of guys. I think it just comes from being kind of bullied and stuff. Sure. And I never kind of responded, hey, you fag. You know, yeah. you know, that name calling and all that. Also, I, I had... I still do I Tourette's when I you know my whole life, but really? not, not not the screaming Tourette's, but the just the ticking you know all kinds of. Really, I, I've I've gotten very good over my course of my life of hiding it. Uh, well, that's a well, that's like cognitive you know, self cognitive therapy. How yeah. how how did you uh, like? What were some of the manifestations? I mean, you talk very frenetically, but I mean, I don't yeah. see anything. Uh, it, it's a lot of it's internal, but it was uh, it was always there's always some visual tick. Right at the moment, it's it's it's. I don't. I, I'm controlling it very well. Uh, it's head shaking and blinking, uh, but there's also a lot of like touching the nose and that kind of thing. Really? But, yeah, but I would have. I went through. It, but they would switch like every year. You it would switch into a new. You would feel your tick was about to change. And you, you, you'd hook onto something else because for a while it was blinking. It was always like blinking my eyes, blinking, blinking, blinking. Then it was like wiggling my nose. Like, I do that a little. Yeah, yeah, but it was like obsessively. I remember some girl like they go, they start calling me like the rabbit or whatever. And it's just like, oh, so when people get out, you thought you were hiding it. When they catch onto it, I think then you would ch- change it up. But so you, you're saying that like when you have it and you know you have it, that you know there you there's a it, it, it's um they call it stimming. I think in the in the autistic world where oh. where um where you you just focus in on an obsessive behavior because it's comforting somehow. Yeah, yeah. So you make a choice. I, yeah, you know what? I, I think so. I mean, it's a lot of it's internal. A lot of it's, it's clenching inside. Like, really. Like, do you get some? Is there like? It, does it feel good to do it? It doesn't feel good, but it, you have to do it. You know what it is, and I guess there is some sort of some sort of comfort but, in it. But but it's but it's 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 harrowing because you're exhausted when you're doing it and you're constantly trying to hide it for me like the but sh- you feel your brain saying like do it do it yeah do it oh yeah you can't not and do you it. can't stop it it's it's a for me it's constant clenching inside and uh-huh. to point and i used to talk to my doctor like i'm gonna have a heart attack because i'm just clenching he's like it has nothing to do with that you're fine but uh like for me the the shower is ground zero that is the like it just goes bananas because i think it's just the overstimulation of water hitting you and stuff i always like walk out of the i always walk out of the shower like exhausted huh there's definitely a physical aspect to it because he can't not do it, right? Um, but but the weirdly, because uh, I you know the research I've done on it, there is you don't do it when you sleep, and weirdly it goes away when you're having sex. Yeah, you know, and uh, it's that's all, a different zone, I think, mentally. You're, somehow, you're, yeah, it's very bizarre. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's probably I, a good, a great gift that you don't have it during sex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe it'd be better. That's my wife. Depending on what that's the right. uh, the, the tick is. But I guess for me, I guess the weird thing is that I I can control it in the sense of I can. I can kind of I have to when I go on television or when I'm doing stuff like like being at the Globes last night is a bit of a nightmare for me yeah. because like my wife will go oh you were on camera a couple of times it's like 
was I doing, was I treading out? And she's oh, no, no. Because, like, sometimes I'll see, like, like in from rehearsals, they'll, like, tape them, and I'll see me, like, doing some obsessive thing with my nose or blinking, like, really fast. It's like, yeah. oh, shit. Yeah. And I'll like, cut that out. You got to cut yeah, that yeah. out. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just weird. It just it just kind of it's 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 one more thing to have to worry about. But, but for but being conscious and aware of it, you're able to control it a bit. Yeah, but I got made fun of it so much as a kid that I live in fear when I'm out in public of like, oh, somebody's gonna start making fun of me. Like, there's nothing worse for me than like if there's a group of teenagers around anywhere. It's even like, now. Oh, oh, to, oh I, I live in terror of. So teenagers. high school never ended. No, never ended. I live in terror of teenagers. <laughs> I do. That's why I think I don't want to have kids. You know, I never want to have kids. But I. But, so, but that's what that now. I. I hire them to work with them because then I'm in, in charge of them. <laughs> oh my God. I can fire you if you make fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's harrowing <laughs> because I've, I've, I've had that moment where, where I'll see jocks on the street and I'll be like, Oh, be cool. And I'm like, I'm 48 <laughs> years old. They're not even noticing me, but it, it's not the same. Cause if you have physical things, you know, teenagers right. are horrible, horribly no. cruel people. Oh God. I, well, that's all my, my fear is, you know, being like, uh, Clint Eastwood and Gran Torino, except like you know he's a badass; he can take yeah, him on. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, if I look askance at some tough guys, then they're gonna like oh. there'll be a home invasion. I'm sorry, <laughs> Paul. I know it's terrible. So I don't know how we got on this. So you, I don't you, know. You, you want to work with women more? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Just because, yeah, I, I'm more. I feel more comfortable just kind of in that style, and I, I, I think I'm good at it. I'm a very feminized guy. You know, yeah, I really kind of see that side of. Well, more. I think you, like we said at the beginning that you know the ensemble, you know, crassness of uh, of bridesmaids really kind of blew something open, and yeah. I and I think it's sort of sad uh, indicator of culture that like people were so amazed by that. It's like, oh, chicks can be funny and crude. I Yay. know it's so ridiculous. I mean, how that how that even began this this you know question about that. Yeah, I mean, it's like Judd telling uh, Jerry Lewis to fuck off the other night. Did you hear no, that? No, no, I didn't oh, hear about that. His acceptance speech at the Critics' Choice when we <laughs> ends with Jerry Lewis once said because these are horrible quotes from Jerry like 15 years ago I remember so, that at Aspen Comedy Fest yeah, about it, women yeah yeah exactly so just like well Jerry said women are funny with all due respect uh, Jerry fuck you <laughs> in the end of this thing is like wow I'm standing on stage and Judge just told Jerry Lewis to fuck <laughs> and we go Jerry I, it wasn't me I didn't say it. you were both up there because you won for Bridesmaids yeah we won the yeah, best comedy for that yeah oh uh, I wish I had known that I'm yeah, such an good. idiot That's no it. please but you, so, it, what was your process with him on Bridesmaids? Was he just overseeing it, or did he? Uh... Well, he. I mean, he. He was. You know, he kind of started it with with Kristen way back in two thousand seven. Uh, was it his script? No, no, it was hers. But right. he said, you know, he, after had knocked up, it's like you know, come up with something. And so she wrote it, and they developed it together for quite a while. But then when I came on board um, full time at the beginning of like two thousand ten. Yeah, then we all got in the room, and that's where we really do our process. And he and I are really hard on it, and go back and forth. It was I was like doing freaks and geeks again, restructuring the the moments and and stuff like that. Yeah, so you guys went over it a few times. Yeah, and we had Annie Mumolo, who was Kristen's writing partner in the room with us all the time because Kristen was off doing SNL, right? And and then you know Annie would get together with Kristen, and but you know Judd would always call up and kind of break the bad news to Kristen of like we want to change this scene or we want to add. Was there any big? Were there any real obstacles or fights around scenes? Well, I mean, I I know that they were as as well. They should have been very nervous about the dress shop scene because that's all execution based I mean really it, it, that, that was on you yeah oh totally but that's what I kept saying like trust me trust me I'm not going to shoot this sh- shitty I'm not going to make it because- you, were, you did shoot it shitty <laughs> <laughs> and then also the airplane scene because it, they were always supposed to go to um, uh, Vegas and then Judd and I just from the beginning were like oh why do we want to take on the hangover like they yeah. did so well and and I, I really wanted to showcase Kristen because yeah. I'm her biggest fan and I love when she does physical comedy it's like what what would be the funniest thing? And I remember just kind of like, 
what if they don't get there? And, you know, then you kind of start off like, drunk on the plane. Oh, my God, she'd be so hilarious of being drunk. And, uh, you know, and they and Kristen is great. She goes, once once she's got it in her head that we're going to do it, then she just goes for it with a gusto. Were you surprised at the breakout performance of uh, Melissa? Yeah, I mean, Melissa McCarthy? Yeah, I mean. No, I, I wasn't surprised just because when she first came in, it was kind of like, holy shit. Like, I mean, she we had never seen the character done that way before. She came in late in the process. Uh-huh. And then when we got into rehearsals and everything, it was just clear, like, She's like fantastic. So actually, that whole scene where she comes over and beats up uh, Annie, trying to get her to adjust her attitude, was originally supposed to be like a call center woman from Mumbai who kept calling Annie to collect on the bills, and then that woman was supposed to like give her a speech right. on the phone. Was like, you know what, Melissa's so funny. Let's have that character come over and, and, and do it. And then, That's such a great character. Yeah, and then that got written in this weird kind of like you know aggressive, you know, sexually dubious. Yeah, but super <laughs> confident. That's what I. Yeah. That's why I think people love that character, and I. I I hope hopefully, you know, she won't get put into roles where she's like plays the loser because, you know, it's just that's what was so groundbreaking is this, you know, the character you would think would be not confident is like yeah. the, the just the balls out. Like, here's how it fucking is. And here's how it happens. I, and I love that. And I it's think, a real it's a real character. Yeah. yeah so yeah. much so. And again, you know, totally grounded and believable. OK, so. Uh, all right. So are, the other projects you have, you don't want to. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, they're all in development. It's like, I mean, one thing TV I, or movies. Uh, 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 movies, although uh, movies, but there is one TV series I want to I want to do. I, I, I feel like it's it's a very personal. It's almost like even more personal than Freaks and Geeks was, but in that in that same kind of tone. And that's taking same... my books. I have these two memoirs. Yeah, kick me in, in super stud and uh, using those. I just want to really want to tell the real story of kind of. To me, it's it's a coming of age, coming of middle age story about both my dad and myself, and kind of going between the two. It's just it's a lot of funny, awkward episodes. Do you feel you have closure around all that stuff with your dad and your parents and everything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my parents were great, and uh, we were all you know. I, I, I'm one of the few comics to kind of, you know, kind of come from a very happy home and not yeah. hate my parents and yeah. all that. You know, I'm sad that they're gone, right. obviously, but um, no, I, I feel pretty good about that. I, I don't have any regrets of like, oh, I, if only I had said this. Or, right, right. Yeah. How do you feel about the um, the sort of love of Freaks and Geeks? And also, do you, are you disappointed you know, now that you couldn't have gone further with it or done um, more? Or I go back and forth. I mean, the one thing you want when you do anything in this world of filmmaking and television and movies is for what you did to last a long time and to, to just kind of, you know, be in the public consciousness forever, if possible. And so because of that, yeah. we did, I'm kind of like, sometimes I almost feel like, whoo, whew, we got away with something. Right. <laughs> like where I almost feel like, yeah, I'm sure it would have been great if we kept going. Uh, you right. Know, we had a lot of energy for it, but at the same time, you go like, "Wow, what if it jumped the shark or something?" So right, because like you know, you would have to grow those kids up eventually. Yeah, and we were always prepared for that, and we really were set to like we're going to change everybody change groups each year because that's how all my friends like you know I'd have a nerd friend and the next year I'd come back and he'd be a total burnout. Sure. Like, what the hell? Happened? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there was a lot we could have done, but I'm I'm kind of cool with it and. Uh, had you had you asked me maybe uh, you know last year I yeah. might have had a different because finally I had another thing that did well because I I spent you know the ten years I, like I, those shows I worked on I'm, I'm so proud of and I really got to be you know right in the middle of amazing shows but you don't feel that ownership right and obviously you know bridesmaids is a total team effort and everything but you still at least go like oh thank God I got something else that kind of 
burst through. Right. Because I remember kind of thinking, I really, I would always kind of run it on the clock occasionally. Like, I felt like last 10 years, like, yeah, I'm just kind of running down the clock in my career, and I'll just kind of do... Now, Directing TV. Yeah, yeah, and if I can be in, doing cool stuff, it's really cool, but it's still not going to have that thing. So so it's nice to have gotten another one. I'd like to I'd like to have another one now that I also, you know, really got... Sure, know, and another one after writing, that. Credit. We'll have the yeah. same conversation after the next one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I make Sweater Busters, the movie. <laughs> Great talking to you, Paul. You too, Mark. Thanks. All right, that's it. Paul Feig, the lovely and intelligent Paul Feig. I'll be at, in Boston tomorrow night at the Wilbur Theater for the Magnus Comedy Fest. I think there's probably a few tickets left if you want to go to that. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Hey, and look, if you don't want to get the app, a lot of uh, episodes available at WTF uh, Premium on iTunes. I mean, like I'm looking at it right now. And, you know, you've got the two Louis C.K.'s, Galifianakis, Robin Williams, Dane Cook, Carlos Mencia, David Tell, Judd Apatow, Ben Stiller, Bob Odenkirk, Sarah Silverman, Maria Bamford, uh, Andy Richter, Doug Stanhope, Jeff Garland, Jim Norton, Eugene Merman. Man, it's a lot of stuff up there. If you're interested in that, if you don't want to get the app, which you can also get for iPhone, iPad, iPad, iPod Touch, or your Droid thing, the Droids are available at the Amazon website. But get on the mailing list at WTFPod.com and I'll I'll email you every week. I'm good at that. I'm good with that. Where's Boomer? Ugh, door's closed. Not going to happen. Not going to happen today. Okay, I'll talk to you later.